Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. We'll be joined right now by Nathaniel Grow. Nathaniel is a contributor at Fangraphs, the author of the book Baseball on Trial, The Origin of Baseball's Antitrust Exemption, and an associate professor of legal studies at Terry College. Nathaniel, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Well, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Well, my dad was a big baseball fan, so growing up, he kind of got me hooked on the sport, you know, played, then I played Little League and, you know, whatnot like that, and uh, just always loved the game and find the legal issues that it raises uh, to be interesting as well, so it's been kind of a good fit for me. We are recording this podcast on Wednesday afternoon. The current CBA agreement is set to expire tonight at midnight. The two sides are apparently making progress, but what is currently holding up this deal right now? Good question. It sounds like the players are kind of the ones dragging their feet a little bit based on the current media reports. And it's not, you know, there's a little bit of conflicting information out there about what exactly is is the delay. Um, One thing that one of the issues that seems to be uh, causing some problems is the luxury tax, which I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit more about in a minute, you know, in detail. But um, just how much that luxury tax threshold is going to go up. How quickly it's going to happen? You know, is it going to be a slower series of increases? Um, is it going to happen all at once? You know, in a, in a more expedited fashion. So I think that that's, by all accounts, one of the big issues that the parties are trying to deal with. I think there's some competitive balance tax issues, although I haven't seen a whole lot about exactly what um, the negotiation issues would be, in particular surrounding the competitive balance tax. The international draft issue had been kind of um, lined up as one of the big ones, and then within the last day or two, there were reports suggesting that the owners had backed off on their demands for a draft and that they might be willing to compromise a little bit more on that. So it's, it seems like from the current reports that the luxury tax and just I think just the players' general kind of hesitance to really you know dive into an agreement seems to be what's slowing things down right now. Going into this negotiation, what do you think should have been the primary ask or want from the players? To me, it's it comes down to the revenue. Um, you know, I've done some writing over at Fangraphs talking about how the players' share of league revenues has gone down um, over the last ten to fifteen years. You know, you see MLB as a whole is doing really well, and admittedly, some of that's their MLB a, uh, advanced media, you know, wing their digital streaming wing, but just the game itself has, you know, become, has increasingly uh, generated a lot of revenue, and the player's share of that has been declining in recent years. And without a salary cap or a salary floor, it's hard for them to do too much directly guaranteeing a flow of revenue, a, fl- a, sh- a fair share of that revenue flows to them. But there's little stuff like the luxury tax threshold, things like that, that I think that they are wisely by all accounts, you know, focusing on in order to try to get a larger share of the money in the game for themselves. You had reported earlier in the year that the players saw their revenue share decrease from 56% at its peak to 38% now. The owners kind of disputed that. They say that the player share is much closer to 50% when accounted for actual on-field product, not including revenue from advanced media. So what exactly has the decline in revenue been for the players? It's really hard to tell from outside the black box of MLB because, you know, the data that, you know, Maury Brown at Forbes posts about the revenues of the league and stuff, it's not really delineated in terms of sources. So it's all just kind of general speculation. Interestingly, you know, the players union pushed back on the on the idea that they were seeing a, a declining share of revenues as well. I think even if it's 50 percent, you know, we can quibble with the details and how it's calculated. But even if it's 50 percent, that's still a decline from the, like you said, the 56 percent it was at 
back in 2002, maybe that's less alarming decline, but you're still looking at a decline there. So it's just really kind of what number you want to put on it, not whether the the players are losing revenue compared to where their you know previous generations were 10, 15 years ago. And what are the reasons for their decline in revenue? Well, I think there's a lot of different factors. You know, some of it is just like I talked about in that post back in, in, in Fangraphs um, a while ago. You know, some of it's just economy wide, right? We're seeing a larger and larger share of, you know, revenue going to the top 1%. And, you know, economists aren't even sure exactly why that's happening. You kind of see the same trends in the baseball industry as well. There's other stuff like the revenue sharing has decreased the um, the desire, the um, the economic motivation for big market teams like the Yankees and Red Sox to spend as much because now that they're any dollar that they earn is going to, you know, at least partly to other teams, it decreases their motivation to spend to increase their own revenues to some extent. Um, the luxury tax is, I think has been a big over the last four or five years, I think has really been a big factor in why salaries haven't gone up quicker. So just kind of a variety of different things like that have really played into uh, the predicament that the players find themselves in today. Well, let's talk about the luxury tax for a little bit. It appears to be one of the last issues that's really holding up a deal from getting made. Ken Rosenthal reported that the owners are hoping to attach draft pick compensation or loss of a draft pick to going over the threshold. And this seems to be one of the things that the players are fighting. And I would fight that too. Attaching draft picks to that number would make it much more of a hard cap for teams. And I think that it already became more of a harder cap than the players expected and that they should fight any attachment to draft picks with it if they can. Their goal should be to increase the number without draft picks associated with it. I agree completely. I mean, if I'm the players, I definitely am, do not want to do anything that could strengthen the luxury tax and, you know, the and increase the hesitancy of teams to go over it. You know, I think that that's really over the last four or five years, one of the biggest factors in You know, if you look at it from in terms of when the luxury tax was first implemented, it was a much smaller penalty, and it was set at, I don't remember the numbers quite off the top of my head, but it was set at, I want to say, roughly like 80% of like the Yankees' average annual revenue, so like a really high threshold. And in progressive CBAs, that threshold's gotten lower and lower as a share of total revenues, and so now what you're seeing, you know, is not just the Yankees butting up against the luxury tax, but you're seeing, you know, even some more mid-market teams like the Tigers are up against the luxury tax. And that that's starting to become a calculus that, you know, a bunch of teams are having to wrestle with is do we want to go over the luxury tax threshold? How much are we willing to spend? And I think, you know, in some respects, it's really become almost like a de facto salary cap for MLB. And so from the owner's perspective, that's awesome. We got the salary cap in effect that we always wanted. And we didn't have to, you know, go through all the labor hassles that it would have incurred, you know, that we were trying to go, that we were incurring to try to get it back in 1994 and all that. From the player's perspective, you know, we want to, you'd want to raise the threshold and you'd want to minimize the penalties for going over it. Because right now they get all of the potential downside of a salary cap in some respect. I don't want to overstate it. There's obviously some flexibility there for teams like the Dodgers, but in some respects, they get all the negatives of a salary cap without some of the benefits that actually would flow to players if there was an official cap. Um, in the other sports leagues, you see when there's a cap that's set at a certain level of the league's overall revenues. And so you, in the NBA and the NFL, the players aren't seeing the same declines in their revenue because the cap is adjusted 
shifted upwards as the league revenues expand. And the luxury tax has never been set at any level of league revenues. There's never been anything like that. It's just been set at an arbitrary number. And if revenues grow way faster than the players were expecting, like I'm presuming is the case over the last four or five years, they end up getting left out in the cold a little bit as that luxury tax doesn't adjust upwards to reflect the uh, amount of money flowing into the game. Yeah, and I think that part of the problem is that the players regret agreeing to the luxury tax in the first place. I think it turned out to be much more of a hard cap or much more of a cap than they ever anticipated, and the cap is something that they always fought. I think it would be their preference to get rid of it entirely, but their best-case scenario, because it's not going anywhere, is to modify it more in their favor. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, I've, I don't know if it's 100% fair or not, but I've definitely, in my, I've definitely viewed the players' union a little bit negatively over the last four, five, ten years, that I think they've given up more than they realize they were giving up, and in hindsight, than they would have liked to have given up on things like the luxury tax and, you know, the um, this last go-around, the qualifying offer system, some of that stuff. So, you know, I think the favorable interpretation from kind of like a player's rights point of view is that the players have wised up a little bit this time around, that they really did not get that good a deal back in 2012 during the last CBA talks and that now they're really digging in their heels and trying to make sure that they are, you know, absolutely getting the best deal possible and trying to put their owners, you know, on the defensive a little bit when it comes to the negotiations. Let's talk about the international draft for a little bit. This was an issue that was important to the owners and they have apparently tabled. The players really fought back on this and I'm glad they did. I'm actually surprised they did because they have in the past really sold out the amateur guys and uh, that's a shame those young guys, whether it be international or just our own teenagers here, are the guys that need union representation the most. They don't have any money and they are the ones getting thrown under the bus. So that's always unfair, but the players in this case have put their foot down. They have not agreed to an international draft. I actually think that whether the owners know it or not, they helped them out here because baseball has a huge advantage over other sports. It's their ability to give players money at a younger age than any other sport. They can start giving kids money when they're 16 years old, and I do think that gives them a huge advantage. I understand why the owners wanted it because it deflates the cost of the uh, it artificially deflates the cost of the international players, but I'm glad that the players fought them on that. Yeah, I think you know, the draft is an interesting one because on the one hand, you know, from like the, just the general, you know, average fans perspective, you know, I'll admit, I, I generally agree with you that I don't think it's a good thing for the players and I'm worried about the effect it could have on the game overall. But, you know, it, the current system doesn't make sense at some level too, right? That, you know, U.S. players go through this draft, they don't have the same leverage that they would in an open market and that you get players, you know, teams spending $70 million on Yohan Moncada, Whereas, you know, the best player in the United States is going to get a fraction of that. You know, some of that doesn't make sense. But on the other hand, I do think that there are a lot of concerns with what would happen if you implement it. Is it even feasible to have an international draft? I don't think, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer. I don't think anybody in MLB is talking about a true international draft right now because there's issues with the Japanese posting system and how that would have to be accommodated. You know, there's issues with Cuba and the diplomatic relations and how we would have to negotiate that, especially under now a Trump administration. And there's all sorts of complicated, you know, political legal issues like that. And so really it's just about the Dominican and Venezuela, I think for the most part. And, you know, I, I think I, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I applaud the players for standing up to it. It seems like the Latin players are having a big impact on that, that they are staunchly opposed to it. I think that there's economic reasons why the, why even American born players would, would be worried about it. You know, if you start 
having Dominican and Venezuelan players, you know, getting drafted at 18 instead of 16, like MLB is talking about, eventually adjusting the draft age upward, then those Latin players are, are getting into the majors at a later date, right? And a lot of the big free agents you've seen who have entered the market in the prime of their careers in recent years have been, you know, guys like Miguel Cabrera or, you know, Jose Fernandez would have been had the tragedy not occurred. And that's where you get the huge dollars is when those guys, you know, the prime talents going up on the open market at 26, 27 years old. And I think, you know, if you have a draft and now those players are coming up at a later age, that's going to have a ripple effect on everyone, not just, you know, the entry level Latin American, you know, amateur talent. So, you know, I think that from a player's perspective, there's not really in the one hand, yeah, it's easy to give away a draft because it doesn't affect anybody in the union right now. And if they can get more for themselves currently from a selfish perspective, it kind of makes sense to give it away. But from a long-term kind of union benefit standpoint, I don't know if it, you know, is really is in their best interest to, to cave on that. And it sounds like they've decided that it's not. One of the issues I'm surprised we haven't heard anything about from the players is the issue of service time. Right now, the owners get seven years of club control with players. That's significantly more than the owners get for rookie contracts in football or in basketball. I'm surprised that the players didn't fight back more on that. I think there are a lot of advantages to that. To me, that would have been my primary goal. My primary ask is to reduce the service time, and it's not even an issue we've heard anything about. Does that surprise you? Um, A little bit, yeah. I think that you know, some of it's probably just a sense of what's realistic from the player's point of view. And, you know, that if the, that's something that I, I suspect the owners, especially from a small market perspective, that's one of those things that could, you know, really become a deal breaker. You know, if you're the Tampa Bay Rays, that's basically your whole business model is to depend on cost controlled, you know, pre-arbitration or pre-free agency talent. You know, that's going to be something you're going to take to the mat, you know, to the end of the, to the end of the road on that. So maybe it's some of it was, they just didn't think it was reasonable or realistic. I mean, um, you know, I think that there's been some questions about how exactly you modify that system. I, I'm sure that, you know, smart minds could come up with a, a better system than what we have right now. But on the other hand, teams are always going to be motivated to find, you know, whatever advantage they can. And so if you try to lower it to six years, then, you know, teams are still going to be holding players out at the start of the year to try to maximize that the best they can. So I, you know, I, I think that from the player's perspective, I think that shortening that peer, that window would help with the revenue disparity issues we talked about before. I think there's all sorts of reasons for the good of the game. You don't have the Chris Bryant-type situation from a couple of years ago, but whether that was the most pressing issue facing the players and one that they thought they could really get any you know headway on, I, you know, maybe they just decided it wasn't worth the fight given the lack of um, likelihood that the owners would bend on it. I think that the owners are going to walk away from these negotiations having obtained their primary goal, which I think was to prevent the players from getting any of the revenues from advanced media or any of their off-field sources. Do you feel like the players are going to get their primary goal in this negotiation as well? You know, from the owner's perspective, you know, retaining all that MLB advanced media revenue definitely would be the top priority. Although it seemed like the union had already kind of caved on that originally, like Tony Clark, what kind of going back to the year point about the players share of the revenues, you know, Tony Clark had kind of admitted that from the players perspective, they were getting a sufficient amount of revenue because, you know, they were kind of not counting that baseball, you know, MLB AM media revenue anyway. So I think from MLB's perspective, I totally agree that, you know, that's something they would have fought on tooth and nail, but I don't know if how, you know, how much at risk that was in this negotiation. And then I think after that, they probably, 
you know, international talent. It seemed to be from at least public statements, you know, the top priority, the second top priority they had going in. In terms of the players' top priority, you know, it's tough to say because they they had a lot of different issues. And I think you know the luxury tax stuff we've been talking about, the revenue stuff we've been talking about, um, the free agency, you know, issues. How important, how much importance they put on the you know the qualifying offer system and trying to get rid of that. I think a lot of the stuff that's not as sexy and doesn't make it into the headlines, but that matters to the players are things like, you know, um, day games after night games and, you know, the day off after, you know, cross-country travel and, you know, kind of the wear and tear things that fans don't really think about but have a, but have a huge impact on the quality of life for players and the travel that they're incurring and those sorts of things. You know, lower, you know, shortening the schedule was something that doesn't sound like it's going to happen, but the players had talked about. So I think... You know, fundamentally, at some level, the players probably want to, you know, better their lives at the end of the day. And to the extent they can, you know, get some traction on things like the um, the days off and things like that, that could have a big impact. I'm guessing that that was something that they actually cared quite a bit about, even though it's not something that we as fans think about or the media talks about as much. It, it does seem like we're bagging on the players a little bit here, but they did get some wins as well. We mentioned the international draft earlier, they being able to squash that, or at least apparently being able to squash that. Uh, it looks like they're adding a few days to the season to give them some more time off, which I think will help them. And they're apparently adding a, there's been a lot of talk of adding a 26th man to the roster. So that'll be another player making major league money, which will help them. Um, and we'll see what happens with the luxury tax as well, if they are ac- actually able to raise that a significant amount. That'd be a big win for them as well. Yeah, I think that the the proof will be in the pudding a little bit in terms of what they come up with with the luxury tax. And I think that there had been a report that the that some big market teams, I'm guessing the Yankees, um, Dodgers in particular, and the union had been fighting for just basically a, like an amnesty on the luxury tax or a reset on the luxury tax. So that even if the Yankees had been over it for X number of years, they'd no longer pay that 50% penalty that they'd reset and have like a free year, you know, and then start the penalties anew. If if the owners agreed to something like that, that's potentially a big win for the players. If you see the Yankees now all of a sudden over the next couple of years be able to ramp up spending, you know, 40 or $50 million again, that could have a significant impact. Um, you know, and how quickly that luxury tax threshold goes up. If it jumps up, I don't think this is likely, but if it jumps up 30, $40 million, that's probably a pretty significant win for the players. If it goes up 10, 12, you know, a million a year for the next three or four years, maybe that's not as big a win. So I think, you know, for the it's, it's hard to be, it's hard to tell what's going on from outside that negotiating room. But I think once the details of that luxury tax emerge, we'll have a better sense of how well the players came out financially here. Yeah, and it's going to have to increase somewhat. If there is a 26-man added, they're going to have to add room to the luxury space to accommodate that player on yeah, the roster. Yeah, I think that that, you know, although I guess, you know, it depends on how teams are envisioning that role, I guess, right? If it's if they're envisioning it as a, you know, league minimum player, it needs to go up a little bit, but not as much. If they're looking at it as, you know, as somebody we're going to go out and spend potentially significant money on, you know, then a team like the Yankees can say, yeah, we've got to have it go up, you know, even a minimal, up, it's a good point, even a minimal upgrade on that luxury tax threshold might just be eaten up a lot by that extra roster spot. So ultimately, if a deal is not reached by tonight at midnight, what happens next? There's been rumors of a potential lockout. Would the owners actually lock out the players at this point? What would they actually accomplish by doing so? Yes, that's, that's an interesting question. I think, I, I think it, it determines a lot will be of that will be determined by how today goes and how last night went. You see different reports about how confident, you know, unnamed sources are about this or that. I think 
if the from the owner's perspective, I think if they legitimately think a deal is close but just not quite attainable by midnight, that they probably just keep negotiating because a lockout's going to ruffle feathers and going to kind of cause each side to retract or to retract a little bit from the negotiations and reevaluate. So if they think that they're really close, there's not a good reason to do a lot to you know implement a lockout right away. But if they think there's still a significant divide between the players and the owners, and they're getting frustrated with the player with the positions the players are taking, then it might make sense for the owners to you know to implement a lockout and just see how that shifts you know the bargaining leverage a little bit. I think from ownership's perspective, it in, it imposes a little bit of pressure on the players. Any free agents wouldn't be able to sign, so you're creating some uncertainty for all those guys whose you know futures are up in the air right now. It reduces, you know, their obligations to fund medical care and pension benefits and stuff like that. So it puts a little bit of financial pressure on the players, not as much as it would during the season, of course. And, you know, so I think there's also kind of a little, in some ways, there's a little bit, there's little downside to it. The worst case scenario is that it pisses the players off and, you know, makes them refuse to deal. But I don't know how likely that is that even with a lockout that you're seeing the season seriously in jeopardy. So... To me, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens. I don't think it's that big a deal if it happens, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't happen. I want to switch off the CBA to ask you about the Dodgers television situation for a little bit. The Dodgers have been blacked out in Los Angeles. 70% of Los Angeles has not been able to see Dodgers games over the last three years. There's been a dispute between Time Warner and DirecTV. It looked like Time Warner was the bad guy in all this, but it appears that DirecTV might have been colluding with other cable providers to suppress the cost. Where do we stand with this issue? What's going on with the Time Warner, DirecTV, Dodgers cable dispute? The status, well, the status right now is the U.S. Department of Justice filed a lawsuit a month or so ago against AT&T, who now owns DirecTV, alleging that you know executives at DirecTV basically colluded with um, officials at other cable networks like Dish Network and Charter, if I remember correctly, the names involved to try to pressure the Dodgers and Time Warner to lower the price for the Dodgers network. And so, like you said, Time Warner had been viewed as kind of gouging the market, but what it turns out apparently happened is all of the potential buyers of the network just said, we're not going to, let's just all agree not to buy it, not to pay for it unless they lower their price. Um, I think a lot in the cable industry is based on the fear that your competitors are going to sign a deal to get that content and then use it against you to steal customers. And so if DirecTV knew that, AT&T U-verse before they were related or the charter was not going to sign a deal with Time Warner that made it a lot easier for DirecTV to hold the line too. And so I think that the fact that the lawsuit was filed probably and with everything else going on with AT&T right now and kind of some of their other acquisitions um and you know legal inter- legal involvement with the DOJ I think it's probably something that I'd suspect you're going to see a lot of movement on in 2017 that a lot of these companies if they haven't already are going to come to the table and make a deal with Time Warner, but it's also possible they just decided to hold the line to, you know, for legal reasons too. But I, I would suspect that we're at the, we're seeing at the start of the thawing of the, uh, of the blackout in LA. If it doesn't, and it could happen very quickly that by opening day, the Dodgers are available much more uh, on a much more widespread basis in LA. Is there anything the commissioner or major league baseball as an entity could have done to have prevented this situation or to have at least made it not last so long. I don't feel like Major League Baseball realizes how bad this is for them, that in one of their biggest media markets, 70% of people there could not see games. And I think of that peak window to attract fans in anything, really, is like 
9 to 12 years old. And we're going on the fourth year here. That's almost a full cycle of 9 to 12-year-old kids who weren't fully able to access or watch their team. And I think that's going to hurt the Dodgers in the long term. And I think it hurts Major League Baseball. Is there anything they could have done to have prevented this mess? You know, could the commissioner have done something theoretically if he wanted to? Yes. Uh, You know, I mean, under his best interest of baseball powers and all the stuff that, you know, all the kind of, you know, historic, you know, authority that's been granted in that office. If he really wanted to, I think he probably could have, to the extent that the Dodgers were able to contractually, given their agreements with Time Warner, you know, he could have tried to exert some um, pressure on them to figure out a way to get a deal done. But there's also kind of the political reality of the commissioner, you know, works for the Dodgers, not the other way around as much, right? And so if, you know, if he goes in and starts, you know, if Rob Manfred starts off his tenure by starting to push, flex his muscle and try to push the Dodgers around and do something that, that the other team's view is costing the Dodgers money, that's something that could definitely blow up on Manfred down the road. And so I think it's kind of this, politi- you know, yes, from a best interest of baseball, from the fans' perspective, it's something that you would have liked to have seen the commissioner become more involved in, but realistically, politically, given the nature of that job, I think once he starts forcing teams to take reduced prices for their regional you know, television rights, that that's something that a lot of other owners are going to have a serious problem with, given how much baseball revenue comes from that source in you know, each of the 30 markets. I want to ask you about your book, Baseball on Trial, The Origin of Baseball's Antitrust Exemption. I guess let's start right there. What is the origin of the antitrust exemption, and how does Major League Baseball benefit from it? The origin is that back in the 1914-15 time period, there was a third league, a rival league that formed to compete with the AL and the NL, called the Federal League. They lasted a couple of years, ultimately get bought out by MLB. I'm I'm way summarizing this quickly. There's a whole, you know, a lot of history there, but basically agree to go out of business and MLB pays off seven of the eight owners, uh, but they never pay off the owner of the Federal League's Baltimore team. And so the Baltimore team is upset. You know, their whole business has just been destroyed. And so they file this antitrust lawsuit under the Sherman Act against the AL and the NL back in 1916. And that case eventually goes to all the way up to the Supreme Court, which rules in 1922 unanimously that baseball is not bound by the Sherman Act, by the Sherman Antitrust Act, because under the law at the time, Baseball was not engaged in interstate commerce. And under the Constitution, you know, that phrase interstate commerce carries a lot of weight because Congress and the federal government have the authority to regulate interstate commerce, but quote unquote intrastate, all within one state, is reserved for the states. And back in the 19, this seems kind of crazy today that, you know, obviously today baseball is interstate commerce. In the 1920s, it wasn't quite as clear. The way the courts interpreted that doctrine was a lot narrower than it is today. They were a lot more restrictive about what is interstate commerce. And the game was just really a whole lot different. You didn't have television. You didn't have radio broadcasting. You didn't have merchandise sales. It was really just tickets to games that were being held in a single state. And so the Supreme Court said that's what we're going to focus on. All the revenue comes from one state at a time. The fact that the players are riding trains from state to state, that doesn't generate any revenue. It's kind of irrelevant from a legal standpoint, according to the court. And because all the revenue was one state at a time, the court said that that meant baseball was an intrastate business, not an interstate business, and thus not subject to the Sherman Act. In a lot of ways, baseball just got lucky. If that case had come up 20 years, 30 years later, it would have come out totally differently. 
but they kind of got in and got a favorable ruling, you know, at the right time historically. And then after that, courts have been reluctant to overturn that for a variety of different reasons. And so to up to the day, you know, baseball still generally has that court created antitrust exemption. How much it, the league benefits from it is, you know, a debatable question. Uh, some people think they get a lot of benefit from it. Myself, I don't think it's quite as much of a benefit as people make it out to be sometimes. I think if you look at the NFL or the NBA, a lot of the business practices are the same as Major League Baseball, even though the football and basketball leagues are, are subject to the antitrust law and baseball isn't. They still operate largely the same way. Um, I think the minor leagues is one area where baseball has gotten a big benefit from the antitrust exemption. You know, some of the stuff with the uh, minor league players' salaries and things of that nature probably wouldn't be going on if that antitrust exemption didn't exist, at least not at the same level. Um, the owners couldn't collude as much to set the prices for minor league salaries and whatnot. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest area is really just kind of the minor league system, preserving it, allowing the owners to have some cost control there. Um, those sorts of things are where they really benefit from it the most. So does Major League Baseball have to disclose any financial information with the government because they have the exemption? No, not at all. So it's just a, the judges basically just in 1922 said this law doesn't apply to Major League Baseball. And ever since then, Supreme Court has said we're not going to overturn that, that it would be unfair to kind of retroactively go back and hold baseball liable for something it thought it was totally lawfully allowed to do, given that earlier ruling. Congress has rarely weighed in on it, and if so, just you know, on a really insignificant basis for the most part. So it's basically baseball is just an unregulated monopoly, in effect, for better or worse. Well, that seems to work out well for Major League Baseball. Yeah, it does. It, it, I'm sure that they don't that they like having that status. Although at the same time, there's things that they, you know, part of the reason I don't think it's quite as significant as it's made out to be is that. MLB knows that Congress could, if it wanted to, pass a law retracting that at any time. And so if MLB really went crazy and just started doing you know, blatantly over-the-top illegal stuff, Congress would weigh in and they'd just repeal it right away. And so it's kind of one of those things where baseball gets a benefit from it, but they can't you know, rely on it too, too much. It's got to be kind of more you know, moderate-type you know, things that they're doing that might run afoul of the law, but yet aren't raising, you know, the public specter to the point that, you know, Congress is forced to act. Uh, lastly, before we wrap it up, I want to ask you about whether or not you think internally in Major League Baseball, and for that matter with the Players Union, that both sides are concerned about the cable bubble bursting, that local revenues and national revenues will not be the same once a cable bubble bursts. Do you think that there's concern there? Good question. I think you know, I think both sides are smart. Both sides are, you know, got really, really smart people working for them. And I think, you know, most observers of the television industry agree things are going to change. And it's just a matter of time until you see some disruption, if if you if we're not already seeing it already. Um, I, you know, so I suspect that, you know, if they were being honest, they said that, yeah, we know that this is not going to continue quite at this level forever. And it's all about you know, positioning ourselves for whatever the next stage of, you know, televised, you know, broadcast entertainment is going to be and how that's going to play out. And I think to its credit, MLB is in a pretty good position there with MLB advanced media and with, you know, MLB.tv and some of the services that they were really at the forefront on and getting in there early, they have the ability to be a direct provider of sporting entertainment to 
fans. And if you do have a totally unbundled, you know, totally cord cutting world where everything's streaming and everything's, you know, a la carte, MLB is in a pretty good position to provide those services to their customers. The question is, is that going to pay as much as they're generating right now? And that's, you know, impossible to predict, you know, probably not, but you never know. Um, but overall, I suspect that MLB would say that, yeah, we're aware that things are going to change and that we're trying to position ourselves as best we can to adapt to that you know, uncertain new future. You've been listening to Nathaniel Grow. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Nathaniel Grow. You can read his stuff at Fangraphs and purchase his book, The Baseball on Trial. Nathaniel, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.